Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Doman and Stephen Craig. This is episode 129. So we're going to have a shout out to our French listeners since y'all won the soccer World Cup. I mean, football World Cup. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah, we have 40 listeners from France. So congratulations. They probably went absolutely insane. Um, and on the flip side, uh, in Croatia, we actually have one listener there. And so if we were, I mean, y'all, y'all came in second place, but if y'all would have won, this thank you would be just for one person in the entire world. One out of seven billion people. <laughs> you know, uh, what? It, what? what's funny is like uh, over here, the World Cup is, I mean, there's plenty of people who celebrate it, but it's just, it's nowhere near the same. And uh, and so when it comes down to like people who are rooting for um, uh, France or Croatia, it's like they visited there for one day, one time in their life. And they're like, that's my country, you know, <laughs> and they're going for it. Uh, four years ago, it was pretty big here in the States, but, you know, the United States didn't make the cut this year. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I didn't watch any of the World Cup because it was just one of those, eh, USA's not in it, so I don't really care. Oh, I watched it. It was fun. I, I love the World Cup. Nah. So. Yeah, the uh, uh, the Russia-Croatia game was awesome. Oh, yeah? What was the score? Uh, what was the score? I mean, it came down to uh, it was it was tie game, and then they went overtime, and then it was still tied, so they had to go to like the the free kick. Oh, it was PKs, yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, and it was like biting teeth kind of or biting nails kind of stuff. Biting gotcha. teeth. That's that's really weird. <laughs> biting teeth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was awesome. Really, really crunchy. Okay. Um. So update from last week, I think. Yeah. Uh, the connectors for the Jeep PCM arrived. And they fit. Perfect. Nice. They are an identical match. So I'm going to spread those part numbers around on my blog in the Jeep forums. And hopefully that will help people out. Uh, how, how many beers did it take for you to swap them out? I haven't swapped them out yet. Oh, okay. I just, okay. I just unplugged them and then plugged the blank ones in and yeah. they fit perfect. And it's, it's, a, it's a multi-piece connector, right? Like it has to kind of like split apart and then come back together. Yeah, a little bit, but not too much. Like the back plate pops off uh-huh. and then you move a, the locking mechanism is actually a sliding mech. So you slide that over and then you put all the pins in, slide it back and then you pop the, the back on. Sounds robust. So Or the grommet kind of thing on. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's pretty easy. I've taken them apart when I was doing the uh, cruise control stuff. I had to take them out apart without breaking them. Right, and each one of the wires kind of goes into its own little gland, right? So it doesn't get grime down in there and stuff. Correct. Yeah, they're completely waterproof. Yeah, cool. Um, uh, I think my uh, Max six six eight two breakout boards they'll be here at the end of the week, so that's gonna be cool. I can't wait to um, actually get those therm- uh, thermistors running. Yeah, start and, doing some actual testing. Yeah, I, I have to bust out like my development board, which I don't know where it's at. Because I'm probably going to write the code on my prop because I'm pretty good at doing I square C on building I square C drivers and spin, mm-hmm. and then porting that. It's funny because I like prefer writing them in spin and then porting it to C. That makes any sense. Um, I don't know. I, I think it's just the structure of, of that language is just so much better at like speed speed uh coding, coding. yeah yeah maybe not and, optimization speed but coding yeah but actually coding and getting it working like hooking it up and it actually working i'm like okay that works now i'm going to port it to c and make it run on you know an efm8 or es or msp430 or whatever i'm using 
It's a hell of a lot of translation going on there. I think I'll post uh, the code next week if it's if I had those boards in. Cool. And then I ordered some of those MEP uh, shitty add-ons. So I ordered one for me. Uh, actually, well, last week we were talking about uh, not having them, but now yep. we are going to have them. So Well, one. Yeah, one. Uh, yeah, Because yeah, I yeah. ordered it. <laughs> but we have actually had some other people order them, right? Yeah, we had um, Zap and Hyron. Uh, they ordered, uh, I think, like three or four of them. Right. Uh, for their badges. They, they're the Anon Exor, the crazy bender in Westworld badge. Bender on a bender? That was last year's, yeah. That was ben, Bender Rodriguez in um, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. But this year's Westworld for them. Mm-hmm. And so they ordered some shitty add-ons, uh, MEP ones for that. Um, and Zap and Hyron was on episode 69, Incognito Mode. And they were also on episode 109, which is Arduino, the gateway to hashtag badge life. So go check those out if you want to listen to Zap and Hyron and Steven and I talk a lot more. And then Brandon Satram, who was on episode 122, uh, and we built the particle IoT stuff. And that was the last, that was the episode Steven was moving to Colorado. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so he ordered he ordered one as well. He's big into the hashtag batch life as well. You, you know, I need to go back and listen to that episode. I still have yet. I I, I poked into just a, a moment of it, but I actually want to get into the particle a little bit. Um, I'm actually helping a buddy do some some IT stuff. It, it's a very good article to get started in that that platform. Great. Yeah. No, I I need to I need to listen to my own podcast. <laughs> <laughs> cool. And then the big thing I've been working on is you know the wagon, of course. Basically, been rewiring the engine harness because the previous harness was just kind of sagging on the engine, and it was like getting hot from the exhaust manifold. It looked like it was on fire at one point of its life, and so I wanted to fix that. So I rewired it over the weekend and uh, extended some of the wires out, chopped out all the stuff that was bad, put in new wire where it needed it, and it looks really good now. And the one thing I wanted to do though was I was basically like un. Bubbaing the wiring harness. <laughs> Anti-bubba. Yeah, I was like taking all the hacks out and putting it all back to stock OEM style. But the number one thing was the AC compressor clutch mechanism, which is a magnetic clutch and you energize it and it engages the clutch so the air conditioner works. This had been bypassed. And so there was a switch on the dash that you pressed and it turned on the compressor. Mm-hmm. It, it activated the clutch and so i was like okay there's a reason why someone went through the trouble of drilling a hole in my nice dash now <laughs> um oh don't lie you want to do that too no i would have fixed the problem which is what i did yeah but you you want to drill holes to add your own shitty wagoneer add-ons <laughs> yeah shitty wagoneer add-ons yeah no that's uh s-w-a-o yeah swows swows <laughs> So I, I pulled out the factory service manual and started looking at like why it wasn't working. I think we covered this a couple podcasts ago um, of like how the AC module worked. So there's like a thermistor and then there's a potentiometer that adjusts how much temperature you want, all that good stuff. And so I actually like pulled the module out from underneath the dash, unplugged it, and then I actually went through the test procedure and made sure, okay, the thermistor is reading like 4.2K. Uh, ohms and that's like around like 75 78 degrees somewhere in that range so i'm like okay so that thing's working and then i'm like 
move the potentiometer on the dash for the temperature control and I'm getting a sweep on my multimeter. So I'm like, okay, that's working. And then I probed the 12 volts in ground and I was getting 12 volts in ground. And then I put the meter on the compressor line and then went out into the hood where the the previous uh, owner disconnected that, that, that wire and clipped it up and I had continuity. So I'm like, okay, everything about the wiring was good. There's nothing wrong with the wiring. That's convenient. The, all he did was just cut it at the end and didn't just like cut the whole thing out. Mm-hmm. So I, then I took the uh, AC control module and I opened it up and immediately saw the problem. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the picture right now. I see the problem too. <laughs> yeah, it, it has a... Uh, one of the transistors had a self-destruct sequence and basically it looked like it sharded all over the PCB. I've never oh. seen anything remotely like that of how energetic it was oh yeah no it 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 barfed all of its guts all over the board (laughs) yeah and the thing is i tried cleaning up whatever it is it would not come off the board it just stuck on usually that 20 20 years old transistor guts yeah transistor guts all over that pcb um and so the fortunate thing was when i opened up the board the other half of the transistor fell out, which had the part number on it. <laughs> <laughs> you got really lucky on that. I got yeah, I got really lucky, and it was a I, my notes uh, a two N four four zero three. I'm like ah, I've used those before, and I can buy those locally at Ace Electronics, which is our local uh, like electronics store here in Houston. Yeah, they're like a few streets over from where Macrofab is. Yeah, so I picked up uh, one of those, and I picked. Uh, well, I start then. I started doing more analysis of the board, so I took the uh, transistor off, mm-hmm. and then I applied power to it, and it still said there was a short. And it turned out the there was a diode, one N four. Wow, what is it? Four. Is, is, is it on your little schematic? Yeah, um, it was D4, my schematic, uh, the 1N4158. So I didn't know that was the exact part number for it because it's a glass diode. Mm-hmm. But I assumed it was that part number because that's like the most popular glass diode there is. Minus a, yeah, 4148? Uh, 58. I would I would think the 4148 is... 4158. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, they're both probably popular. Yeah, very popular. And it was yeah. like, it's a diode that's it's being used as a uh, flyback diode on the relay coil. Oh, it's just protection, yeah. So you could slap practically any diode there. Probably. Um, so I, well, I figure what happened in this circuit was the flyback diode probably failed and sometime in the last 30 years, right? Mm. And then the next time it got actuated, the... Relay spiked the uh, the two N four four zero three and blew it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the, what makes the most amount of sense because the that transistor is driving the relay, so it would get the brunt of the uh, transient spike if the relay cut off without that diode. Yeah, 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 for sure. Uh, you know, I, I think that's actually uh, it's actually worth talking about that for a second for maybe maybe there's somebody out there that doesn't know like if you're if you're using a relay inside the relay is a coil and the coil is in effect a giant inductor uh so when you when you turn it on an inductor is going to resist um a change in current it doesn't it doesn't like to have a lot of current change so when you when you turn off a relay 
the uh, the inductance will actually cause the voltage to spike to, you know, who knows what. It it it, it just it all depends on a, a lot of different factors, but it can be a lot of voltage. Um, so so we put the uh, we put a diode across the relay coils to provide a safe path for it to discharge and not damage anything else. But if that diode fails, that line could be at you know upwards of a, of thousands of volts. Yeah, that's actually a main failure of uh, pinball machines is the diode because they, they put diodes across the coils in pinball machines that do all the flippers and stuff. Yeah, they put the diodes on the coils because it's the closest path, right? It's like the, as close to the coil as possible. Oh, you want yeah, you want it as close as possible to the relay. Yeah. So what will happen is these these diodes will fail sometimes, and then it will blow up the MOSFETs on the control board. Mm-hmm. Right, because Mos- MOSFETs don't like a couple thousand volts reversed. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're not fans. <laughs> so I think this is the exact same thing that happened here. I basically, I replaced the parts, and then I actually made a little test jig. So I, I got like a uh, a resistor that would be, uh, it was like 4.2K or something like that. I just pulled it out of the parts bin. And then I put up a, a little potentiometer on it to replicate the 10K temperature stuff uh temperature um setting and then i powered it up and then when i slot slid the potentiometer back and forth i can make the relay click on and off i'm like okay it's working now yeah nice then i took the design i'm like oh let's make a schematic of it and so i reverse engineered the schematic or i mean the layout and posted it in um in our slack channel and the thing about it is I couldn't really make heads or tails of it. And I redrew it so many times just trying to figure it out. I actually sent it over to Steven, and Steven's like, it looks familiar, but I'm missing something. <laughs> yeah. And Tom Anderson rewrote the schematic as well, and he basically made it readable for me, at least. Basically, the two NPN transistors and the single PNP and a couple of the resistors and capacitors in there make up an op amp circuit, and it's being—it's basically a comparator for the cutoff. Yep. Yeah. It's uh, overall, it's a comparator that's realized in three discrete transistors, mm-hmm. basically. Uh, so, like the potentiometer that's on the board sets the cutoff, mm-hmm. and then the um, the temperature setting on the potentiometer, and then the along with the uh, thermocouple or thermistor set the other cutoff or set the level that varies. Right, right. Which is a little interesting, but um, apparently it works. Which, which you know, it does. It does scream at first, like, why would you do it that way? You know, why would you? Why would you do a discrete transistor thing when you could just throw an op amp package in there? And you're already doing through holes, so you could just pick any through hole dip you know, op-amp package. And so I asked Tom that. I'm like, you know, why, you know, is it just because of cost? Because this is back, this was designed in the 80s. Yeah. And so was it because of cost? Um, where op-amp's a lot more expensive than, because nowadays an op-amp is probably cheaper than three discrete transistors, at least in assembly. But back then, you know, labor was a lot less expensive. And and so he said, yeah, that was probably it. Was It was the bill materials were, were less expensive. But also back then in the 80s, your plastics that were encasing your ICs were not really uh, robust unless you had ceramic ICs. Mm-hmm. And so you wanted, uh, if you wanted high reliability, you wanted to use discrete transistors instead of ICs. Right, right. 
Which makes a lot of sense. And, and, and it might also be, you know, they're, they're designing this car to be able to go through a huge temperature swings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so maybe maybe um, an op-amp circuit for the cost to get an op-amp that would be able to handle the temperature swings might not be, you know, super easy to get. Or it might be expensive. I, I would assume this device outlasted its intended life cycle. I mean, most people do not keep cars 30 years. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, so it's working. Um, so I, I basically, I, I fixed the module and I popped it into on the harness. And then um, I put my meter back on that cable that's underneath the hood. And then I flipped the switch and it got that cable got 12 volts. And so I removed all the bypass circuitry and hooked that wire back up the compressor. And now the... AC module works as it came from the factory. So that's pretty cool. Nice. Yeah, so you're going to post up the picture of the uh, <laughs> the deep-fried PCB? <laughs> deep-fried PCB, yeah. I'll post that and all the, the schematics and stuff that we came up with. And I'm actually thinking about routing that board out and making like a replacement board for people. Oh, that's not a bad idea, yeah. Just so that people can order them. Do it surface mount also. Yeah, I was going to do all surface mount, except for the connector and relay. This this module is in was in a lot of '80s cars, and there's no replacement for them now. So most people are like, "Oh, it broke. I'm just gonna go to the junkyard and find one." And I'm like, "Well, eventually that's gonna run out." Yeah, yeah. So uh, there's a little trimmer uh, trim resistor on the board. I guess that's just for like calibration. Yeah, that's the. You can actually adjust that so you can set when the compressor kicks on and off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the part of the uh, comparator circuit. Interesting. Doesn't look like there's any capacitance in the feedback path of the uh, comparator, but I guess I guess with these discrete transistors, it probably doesn't matter too much, um, just so that there's no like ringing or anything like that. But also, thermistors change so slowly that I'm not. I would doubt that uh, there would be a huge amount of issue with that. Yeah, a lot of oscillation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because because that's a, that's another thing that's not really great for a relay is to just hammer its uh, coil with with oscillation. They don't like that very much. Yeah, I think it's because everything just moves so slowly. Cool. It's funny uh, after after Tom kind of wrote that schematic that um, or redrew your schematic in a way that that uh, is a is a tad bit more readable or more recognizable, I should say. As soon as I saw that, immediately a new circuit just popped into my mind. Uh, or not a new circuit, one that I've dealt with a handful of times. Uh, so there's there's a, a guitar amplifier that was designed originally in the uh, early to mid-80s, and it's actually different variants of it are still in production today. But um, it's made by a company, Mesa Boogie, uh, and it's their Mark series. Uh, so they've gone Mark One all the way through Mark Five, and one of the trademarks of this amp is a graphic EQ where it has sliders to represent uh, the um, uh, the cut and the boost at particular frequencies. It's basically a whole bunch of like peak and notch filters that you can control. Uh, well, interestingly enough, one of the main driving circuits that is surrounds this EQ is a discrete transistor op amp, and I've actually put the schematic up here. It looks super close to Yeah, no, it's 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 like it's really, really, really close. Yeah. It's got a capacitor in the feedback there. Of uh of the um the Is that C forty one? 
Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that's actually, that's for stability. Um, so, so this is being used as like, this is, this is being used as an actual op amp. So, so, you know, within an op amp, uh, you have a, a differential pair, uh, which is two transistors on the front that share current in a way. And then you have a gain stage so that you have the differential pair with the two transistors looking at each other and then some kind of gain stage right afterwards, which in this case is an NPN, um, because this, for some reason, I don't know why, but these guitar amps ran on, um, I'm sorry, I do know why. Th- this circuit ran on negative voltage, and in tube amps, there's a really convenient negative voltage rail. Uh, so take every transistor that you uh, have in your circuit and flip it from NPN to PNP, and you can still make an op amp out of it. Uh, and, and even to today, they still use this circuit, even though you could very well plop in an op amp and do the exact same thing, probably do it better. It wouldn't sound the same. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, but but it's funny because this is a this is a, a an honest to god silicon solution to a problem that that is in the signal path of a tube amp, and people don't really seem to care about this, you know. So, <laughs> but but like as soon as I saw the the, the schematic that that uh, uh, Tom put up, I was like, oh, that's the EQ from Mesa Boogie. So I've actually and I've built this particular EQ a handful of times and and some discrete um, op amps. It's actually a lot of fun to do discrete op amps. You know, what's funny is on that board, there's a lot of no-pop areas. And I bet you the company who designed this implemented a full-on op-amp with feedback and then cost-reduced it. Ah, yeah. They got rid of the stability. (laughs) Yeah, cost-reduced it all until, oh, okay, this is the minimal it needs to actually run the air conditioner well. And we got to save those couple pennies. Yeah, probably. Yeah, it wouldn't, wouldn't surprise me. So, yeah. So if you've ever seen this schematic before, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, actually, I would be interested in seeing if, uh, if anyone else has some discrete op amp circuits that are not used for wanky hi-fi audio stuff, like something where it's a discrete op amp that was built for any other purpose. I would love to see that. That would be really cool. And this is the first time I've ever seen it. Yeah. Yeah. Period. So, um, and it's an RC control module, which is kind of weird. <laughs> it is it, yeah it just uh, this is i think this is a great example of older electronics being built to a price point As, and especially because if you look at the board it's a single-sided board yeah no silk screen uh and then like the through hole header is just pins and holes no, no. This is clearly built as cheap as possible. So some engineer out there did an analysis and found that three transistors plus a handful of resistors was cheaper than, you know, however many op amps they would have to buy to fill this crap. You know. And so the only other thing I did on that was I uh, I replaced the uh, uh, electrolytic capacitor with the same value. <laughs> After this much time, it's not a bad idea. <laughs> and I was just like, yeah, it's thirty years old and it's been in like a hot car all of its life. It's just replaced that, and it, I mean seriously, like it it works great. I I, I did buy extra diodes and extra uh, transistors just in case if I plugged it in and it exploded again. Yeah, <laughs> but I think I spent five dollars on all the parts, and now I have to deal with a hole in the dash. You know, actually, um, interesting topic, electrolytics. We probably won't go too deep into this, but um, I was I was actually designing some stuff not that long ago where I was looking at electrolytics, and um, if you kind of look at the lifespan of electrolytics, 
like on Mauser, for example, uh, they give you a pull down list of, you know, here are lifespans and it'll be like, you can pick a thousand hours, 2000 hours, you know, 10,000 hours. And, and at first like, like, Oh yeah, great. This will last a long time. But when you actually like, you know, calculate that out, say a 2000 hour things, that's only a little bit more, just a tiny bit more than two and a half months of continuous runtime, you know? Uh, now that, that, that a lifetime thing is is based on a whole lot of characteristics the cap will last longer that than that for sure but i mean if you're if you're designing a circuit to be in continuous use for a long period of time then you know you got to be really careful you can't just like slap any old joe schmo electrolytic in there because it just won't necessarily last yeah i think we should cover that in a, in a um future podcast i'm gonna write that down yeah picking picking the right electrolytic yeah for lifespan yeah, yeah, that would be fun. Yeah. Also, uh, something really important to pay attention to is where you put the the cap on your board. Not necessarily for power supply or anything like that, but you don't want it being next to hot stuff or yeah, heat. You don't want it next to your uh, seven eight zero five heat sink regulator. Even though electrically you do want it next to it. Yeah, but you don't want it like touching the heat sink. Exactly. So yeah, that's a good topic. We should we should we should get. We should get dirty with that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, you got anything else, Steven? Uh, discrete op amps are cool. They're they're pretty fun. Give it a try. Uh, I mean, uh, for I mean, uh, Parker, you probably won't because it's not your jam. But some of our <laughs> listeners, some of our listeners might give it a try because it's actually first. It's easy to get uh, a discrete op amp doing op amp things, but it's really hard to get it doing them well. Yeah, it's it's fun makes you makes you appreciate the little black chips <laughs> so i guess we're going to the rfo then right uh yeah 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 let's jump in rfo keycad 5 was released this week um i i don't really have an opinion on that i guess um it's just a big news item for this week I, a lot of a lot of our listeners uh use keycad uh, and and some some of them are probably yelling at us right now because we're not pronouncing it right. <laughs> uh, I, I actually think it's both. Um, it's gonna be KiCad or KiCad. Oh, is it? Uh, it w- there needs to be a consensus on that, you know. Oh, have like a webinar. <laughs> yeah, have like I don't know, or just the the wh- whoever like is the main contributor to KiCad or KiCad just come out and be like, this is it. <laughs> it's kind of like GIF versus. GIF. I can't even believe that I said GIF, but you know, it's it's kind of like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Apparently, it's got new features and blah blah blah. It's just like one of those. I don't know. I I I like Eagle, so and it's gonna be. I've tried KiCad when four came out. I tried it, and I don't know. It just does. So, it just the interface is so different from anything else that I'm like. I don't know. It just wasn't worth my time to relearn something. Like I use DipTrace. I can I can navigate and use DipTrace well. I KiCad is just for some reason their design decisions on the GUI and everything is just not. It's not my style. Sure, sure. Um, I feel like they out of, out of if you take all three of those Eagle, DipTrace, and, and KiCad. I think KiCad spent a lot more time just trying to make their. Um, their buttons look prettier and like there's more like just graphics that look nice. Whereas Diptrace and, and Eagle sort of look more, uh, I, you know, just like 
too straight and to the point, you know? Yeah. Since, like, version, like, Eagle 3, they use the same icons until, like, version 9. Yeah. Eagle. (laughs) But but correct me if I'm wrong. You would know the answer to this. But Eagle guys like the fact that Eagle is very Eagle. Like, it looks and responds the same all the time, you know? They're changing up how the mouse interacts a bit, Autodesk is. I'm not a big fan. Eh, we'll see what happens. Because, like, the right-click now cycles different modes. Didn't it always do that? Yeah, but, like, differently. It's weird. Huh, okay. I I always liked how when you're routing in Eagle, when you right-click, you can choose the different route styles. Yeah, that's what happens. But, like, I don't know. It just feels different now. I don't know what it is. Really? Oh, they started messing with your pride and joy. <laughs> yeah, I think that I think I need to sit down with like version seven, which I still have installed, and version nine. Oh, and look at the differences. And like figure it out because like there is something different with the how the mouse interacts with the board. Hmm. You know, and and that's something I'm I'm sure it's really difficult if you are the developer of an EDA tool. Uh, you know, this is probably a really universal complaint about people who are not big fans of Eagle, but I just like being able to click on a component and left click on a component. And then I select the component. Uh, it, like that just, that just makes sense to me. And dip trace runs that way. You can't click anywhere on a component. You have to click on some, one of the elements, but it's still like if you click on a pad or if you click on the silk screen, or if you click anywhere, you get it. But with Eagle, you have to hunt around with the right click until you find that magic little spot that it selects it. Oh, the origin. Yeah, the origin. And I get that. But uh, one of the hard things I would think in a, as a developer is making the decision to you know how do you let the user select a component because think of if you had like an eight layer board with a component on top and a component underneath and you have all the you have a bunch of traces or planes in between there like when a, when a user clicks what do you give them yeah so uh keycad actually solves that with a context menu that pops up and goes with this left mouse click you can do these things and it pops up a huge list sometimes and you're like yeah and whereas um dip tracing eagle kind of just assume based on what tool you're using what to do yeah and 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 dip trace dip trace is not great at that D- uh, a lot of times you have to select like way far away from the thing that you want in order to get the thing that you want uh because it it, it it dip trace has like priority levels with selection and most of the time those priority levels are not what you're exactly wanting so you either have to like deselect things or turn visibility off or it's so it's not it's not fantastic but really keycad is trying to copy altium in a lot of ways their schematics look like altium that selection menu thing is very altium ish you know like they, they're taking a lot of cues from Altium. because in, in eagle it's you have to use the next function yeah so if you like right if you right click the select is it right click I can't remember because I I'm like on autopilot when I'm routing shit yeah yeah so I don't know like if someone asks me how do you route a board in Eagle and I'm like watch me do it because that's the only way I can show you how to do it yeah I just put jams on and then my eyes roll behind my head and I just go <laughs> yeah <laughs> go um what are, I think it's right click when you select stuff if you if you select if you right click and the wrong things highlighted. You just click next with the left mouse button. Oh, that's cool. And until you get to the right one. I do like KiCad selection menu because it always seems like the last thing you need is like eight clicks through next. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like it's always the last thing in the list that you want. 
Yeah, actually, you know what? Uh, okay, so uh, recently I've been using Fusion 360 um, because I've been wanting to... Uh, I, we're getting some stuff machined for us, and our machinist has asked for some 3D um, step files. So I was like, hey, Fusion 360, I can do it for free. And so I've been using that, and uh, I'm still kind of new to the game, but one of the things is you can draw construction lines which are basically guidelines wherever you wherever you want to draw it so a lot of times to make things nice i'll draw construction lines um and then i will dimension everything such that when i draw my physical lines everything is all like nice and and fusion 360 doesn't cry but the thing that sucks is if you draw a line directly on top of a construction line which is most of the time uh and then you click it wants to select the construction line before your actual line. And so th- it, it does the same thing where it has like a, a, a selection menu, but the way to access it is you have to click and hold it down, hold left click for like a second, and then it allows you to select whichever one. I would think that whatever your drawing is should take priority over the construction line because the construction line is like a one-time deal, uh, but your drawing might be way more than one time. Yeah, I wonder if Eagle has a keyboard sh- shortcut because it would be nice if you clicked and it wasn't your right thing, and then you just hit like Control until you cycle to what you wanted. God, that would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, that'd be really great. Yeah, yeah. that'd be nice because then you don't have to move your mouse too much. Yeah, yeah, that's that's one thing I, I really wish Dip Trace would add because a lot of times when you have so many things stacked on top of each other, I you have to turn off layers or turn off you know pad selection or turn off like you have to go through menus just to be able to select the thing that you want, but then you have to turn them back on to modify the the way you want it to be. So uh, it, it could yeah, it could be better in that regard for yeah. sure. And so before we keep going with the RFO. So um, one project I was talking about, I don't know if I talked about this on the podcast or a different podcast, but the thermal detonator. <laughs> well, that was a tangent. <laughs> well, no, 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 I just, I just, I, I, I meant to add it to the list yeah. of stuff I'm working on, but then I forgot and then I just looked over my desk and there it was. Oh, is this the so new one? It is, Ooh, is that from Shape Boys? All 3D printed. Wow. That yeah. is, uh, that is nice. Yeah. So I'll put the, I'll start painting it this weekend. Um, I'll post pictures because y'all, everyone that's listening can't see that. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Well, and it's the first time I've seen it. Uh, well, uh, professionally printed, I, I suppose. So, so a thermal detonator is a weapon in Star Wars. For those who don't know, uh, in uh, Return of the Jedi, when Leia visits Jabba, she threatens him with a thermal detonator. So it is that thing. That thing. And so I've got a whole box of electronics. I'm going to solder up and put in there. Like it's like a Arduino Nano, some LEDs, some switches, and a battery. Um, and so that's the first iteration. And I'm actually almost at the point where I'm like, I should just because this is actually a really popular print on Thingiverse. Mm-hmm. Is design a PCB that just drops in it, and ha- people can just build a PCB instead of having to solder all this stuff together. Right, because you're wanting it when you flick the little latch on the top. Yeah, it needs to go beep. It needs, yeah, the LEDs need to light up and stuff, and it needs to beep. Yeah, it doesn't have three LEDs that go in a row or something like that? Yeah, yeah, it's got a uh, one LED on top that turns on, and then three LEDs in the front that go beep, 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 beep. <laughs> yeah, I love it. In sequence. That's great, yeah. Yeah. So, Par- Parker and I play uh, a Star Wars RPG every Friday night. So yeah. uh we're dorks. Dungeons and Dragons, so it's really nerdy. And then it's Star Wars Dungeons and Dragons. Oh yeah, no, it's like it's like guaranteed we don't have a life. I sent you a text earlier where someone modified the new Dungeons Dragons uh five, it's the current edition, five E for Star Wars. Oh. 
And so this is not like, because they came up with a new edition of the Star Wars D20. Well, it's Star Wars Roleplay is what they call it. Yeah. Um, the version that we play is based on D20 back in the 90s. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it's actually a lot of dice rolling and stuff, but they changed it with the recent version, and it's not as good. It's not classic. But this person basically modified the new Dungeon Dragon rules to be Star Wars, and he came out with the new version of that and the um, and the monster book, which I thought it's actually really well done. Um, I, I really wish uh, I could give him a shout out, but I can't. I, I'll put it in the podcast notes. Hey, you should check that out, GM. <laughs> yeah. Especially the monster book. <laughs> Wait, I mean, is this like for free or you, you can purchase it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he has a Google Drive up and you just download the PDF. I'm going to. Okay, so I saw you sent that and I thought uh, I was going to look at it after work because I was just like, well, this is probably something that he wants me to buy. <laughs> no, no, no. It's all free. Oh, my gosh. Okay, I'm going to have to check that out. That's great. Cool. I, I want him to come out with a weapons book because that's actually the big thing with the version of Star Wars that we're playing is it's really hard to get the weapons book. Steven's got a copy somewhere. Yeah. And I, I like to get a copy. Yeah. It's hard to get that thing. Yeah, though. yeah, yeah. So, okay, back to the RFO. <laughs> <laughs> Earlier this week, uh, Ben, Ben Heckenorn, was asking me for like high density connectors. And I'm like, I don't know of any. Because he was like, he was going to repurpose a USB Type-C connector because that has 24 pins. And I'm like, that's a really good idea because you can just buy cables and stuff like that. But the bad thing is, sometime down the road, someone's just going to plug something into that. That's I was, I was, just, about to, I was just about to ask <laughs> that because like, you could <laughs> potentially deliver 100 watts worth of power down that. Well, it's got to negotiate and stuff. But like, even just like the... 15 watts it can normally do sure or like just the five volt line could wreck have it uh so i started looking at like high density connectors and stuff and i found a molex connector called uh the molex connector part number is one seven one nine eight two one one four two and it's called nano pitch io series the that that part number is a 42 pin connector that's like tiny yeah oh yeah it does half an amp per pin and the cool thing about this series is you can buy pre-made connectors from Molex, like cables. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, you can buy connecting cables already made, so you don't have to go and buy, like, the, you know, the uh, wire part and then get it made. You just buy a pre-made connector. Oh, so, yeah, they're trying to support their own board mount connectors by offering cables. Cables, yeah. That's cool. So I thought it was really cool. The only downside, I actually looked when I was looking at the data sheet uh, earlier today for this thing, is it only has 50 mating cycles. That's mm. like, okay, so I could understand if this was, say, on a TV or something like that. And, uh, you know, it, it's not intended to be connected and unconnected. But if this was on some other kind of small mobile device or something like that, 50 connections in a day. <laughs> I love this. Uh, I'm looking at the data sheet right now, and page four of the data sheet is the uh, the recommended through hole uh, footprint. And the next the next one is, is it, they offer both a through hole and a surface mount. And and these kind of footprints are those ones where like as soon as you look at it, you're just like ah, oh, because you know it's gonna take you like an you know hour it's gonna to take you so long <laughs> to draw <laughs> this. <laughs> There's like just so many like it's. Just starting, it would is like you'd st- sit for a few minutes to where be like, where am I going to origin this? Yeah, where am I going to put the zero zero? <laughs> and if you have a requirement where you have to put the zero zero somewhere out in space or somewhere like 
elsewhere oh my god this would take so long <laughs> well yeah it's 42 pins plus all the like mounting connections for it well yeah it's 42 pins uh, the yeah the mounting connections are are non circular so you have to draw you know weird oval shaped things uh, and then it also looks like it has two like um, position studs in there too so yeah this this would be fun hmm but but it, I mean it looks it looks like it's oh you know what's actually kind of nice about it uh, if you see there's a uh, dotted outline around the thing that actually represents um, where it sits oh the connector. Yeah, yeah, because a lot of times you won't get this. You'll just get the holes in the pads. Yeah, and then you have to look at the physical drawing and kind of guess. Yeah, it's just like a back and forth thing, which would be horrible for this. In fact, I've actually run into data sheets where it was physically impossible to tell where the outline was based off of the footprint. They didn't dimension it well enough. I've run into that with SD card connectors. Yep. All the time until I land on the one that I use all the time now. And I use it all the time because I designed it once. <laughs> yeah, and it works. It just works. Yeah. Yeah, go back and listen to the Embedded FM podcast if you want to hear about, like, this exact same thing that we're talking about yeah. here. <laughs> Footprint hell. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Very uh, cool. You know, I would say I, the funny thing is I would say electrical engineers are weird, in at least in the board layout electrical engineers like us. That we do a lot of mechanical stuff. Oh, yeah. A whole bunch. So, yeah, that's a cool connector. Um, if, if our listeners, if anyone knows of any other, like, really high density uh, connectors like like that, or some, it's got to be kind of like a USB Type-C, where it kind of, like, snaps in, uh, let us know in the comments below or in Slack. And speaking of Slack, our last F RFO is kind of a question from uh, Decimus. Is that how you pronounce that? And give me, uh, where is it? Uh, why can I not see it right now? Give me a second. Oh, uh, Decimus. Decimus. Um, he is a new person to our Slack channel, came into the Slack channel earlier this week. Mm-hmm. Um, he's learning to be a maker, so that's kind of cool. Um, and he asked, he also, he also ripped through our podcast, like the backlog. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he listened eight hours a day to Steven and, uh, Steven and, uh, and I, so. yeah, he, <laughs> that's impressive. That's crazy. Uh, he, here's uh, cheers to you, Decimus cheers for, for all of your, uh, perseverance. I couldn't stand to listen to myself for eight hours. So, oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he asked us a question today. Uh, we, were, we were probing around in Slack, being like, hey, if you want to ask any questions, go ahead and ask a question. So here's what uh, what he, he came up with. So he asked us kind of a, I guess, a little bit of a design question, and it goes like this. How would you make a device that could shoot flies out of the air? When I hear a fly buzzing around, I find it highly annoying, and they keep getting stuck in one room at work. Uh, then they spend all day flying up and down the room. So... How would you make a device that shoots flies out of the air? So this thing is, you got to shoot the flies out of the air, right? Yeah, yeah. And they make a buzzing noise. Yeah, yeah, uh uh-huh. So I'm thinking you build a PCB with three microphones on it. Yep. Okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then then a servo gimbal set up, and so it could triangulate where the fly is at. Okay. Use a projectile to shoot at it, right? I don't know. I guess make it like a mini rail gun or something. Mm Mm-hmm. I actually don't know what kind of projectile you use, but figure, that's a different thing. I'm I'm thinking about like tracking it. 
Because basically you would keep tracking it until you heard it. You hear it stop buzzing. Oh. Then you know it stopped moving. And then you fire. And then you shoot a flaming cannonball at it. Yeah, or whatever, a rail gun or... <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it'd be, uh, you know, if you're in an office, it'd be really cool if there was a rail gun that you could load, like, paper clips into. And it just had, like, a vertical <laughs> magazine of paper clips. <laughs> so instead of a Nerf gun, you shoot a rail gun at people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it just shoots, it flies. So, okay, you know, a little bit earlier, I did a tad bit of research on this. Uh, on 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 flies actually so uh most flies fit within the 200 to 1000 hertz range that's their wing flap speed so you're, you're pretty much guaranteed there so i had sort of the same idea that you did with <clears throat> having microphone tracking mm-hmm. so if you have enough microphones and a fast enough processor then you could potentially triangulate where the fly is yeah you'd have to have a really sensitive microphone set up oh yeah oh yeah especially to like drown out office sounds or just the air conditioner and stuff (laughs) maybe maybe you could have like maybe you could have pre-sampled like telephone sounds so if it ever detected that it would just squelch that sound or whatnot (laughs) if you're right though is if it's only a certain frequency you would notch you would Band pass just that frequency. Right, right. Especially if you knew, like, there was one species of fly that's always, say, 400 hertz or whatnot. Then you could really band pass it and just pick up the fly. Yeah. So I've, I, I, here's the thought that I had. So, you know, when you're at a concert, if you look at either side of the stage, there's those two big, huge stacks of speakers that are curved. Oh, yeah, the 300-foot-tall speaker towers. Yeah, those are called line out. arrays. Yeah. What's it called? Uh, line arrays. It's just a stack of tons of different speakers. Now, here's the thing. The guy controlling the soundboard, he has the capability of adjusting the phase of each set of line arrays. And what he can do is he can steer the sound around the crowd so he can make like cons, uh, you know, he can make uh, uh, like notches anywhere in the crowd. I I really like where this is going. <laughs> oh yeah. So basically, you make a turret, that, like a rotating turret that has two uh, shape directional speakers on it, flat uh, directional speakers, and those can line array by adjusting the phase, and you can send out audio pulses that are strong enough at the same frequency that the uh, that the fly is flapping its wings and you can disrupt its flight. Uh, and so it's kind of like a humane way that yeah, is and you can drop it out of the air. <laughs> <laughs> now, now that, that would be cool. Would that kill it though? No, it's a humane way of doing it. Maybe you could guide it and like force it against the, Oh, what you do is you guide it and force it against the wall and then you shoot it. Or you just guide if you, I like how the humane way is to guide it, to shoot it. <laughs> You push it. <laughs> well, I, the humane way—the humane way at first was actually to tire the fly out so that it just doesn't fly around. And this thing just keeps it. If you could steer it, just steer it like out the window. Yeah, I guess so. You could do that, but that's. But I like the. I like the idea of like this, of having a railgun attachment to the line array speaker device and then it would you know it would it would push it until the fly was like on a you know a surface and then shoot it (laughs) (laughs) Uh, maybe if you actually had power enough speakers you could just like base the fly to death (laughs) there's just a fly in there and it just explodes it's like a puff of blood (laughs) 
That would be great for mosquitoes. I, I actually, I bet you, if you shot a, if you took a, a microwave, yeah, and then directional, like, and basically made a tube that you could, so you can shoot the microwaves in a like a one inch disc. Oh, like a like a waveguide. I guess they actually a laser that fire, that works in the microwave range. I bet you it wouldn't take much to kill a fly. Mm, yeah, but I mean. Well, here's the thing with the with the with the speaker arrangement. If a human walked by, all they would hear is they'd hear the fly buzzing, but they'd also hear the speaker buzzing at the same thing. So it would just sound like another fly on the desk. With a microwave thing, if someone walked by, they'd get a little get a little cooked on there. <laughs> it's all, it's all right. fine. They fine. won't mind. <laughs> that reminds me of a um, there's a new device out there that does infrared charging. Okay, on your cell phone. So, you know, like wireless charging is like the big thing where you set your phone down on the pad and the pad charges it up. Um, yeah. So this is like a device that goes on your ceiling and it detects, I don't know how, it detects like where your cell phone's at and it beams infrared into a little sensor on like your case that you install on your your phone. And it hits the sensor so you can like laser beam basically in the infrared spectrum power into your phone and actually i think dave jones did a did a video on it i don't know i, I just saw dave jones talking about it on twitter hmm. and so that's just reminding me of that i'll post a link to that and i maybe he's done a video on it or not um sounds dangerous well not really well if it's dangerous then it could work if it's not dangerous then it's not powerful <laughs> enough to charge your phone Nothing's good enough unless it's dangerous. <laughs> well, just so low energy, then like it yeah. can't do anything. Well, yeah. that's like that's like the that's like the Nikola Tesla like car that he could like power over the air. You know that I I don't know the exact story, but it's like oh his wireless power thing, his wireless power thing. But it was you know it's enough to cook a human body if you're close by. <laughs> you know, so it's like okay, that's not gonna work. You like look at your skin and it's just rippling with bubbles underneath it. But my car is wireless. Oh, is that in the, is that in the is that in the movie The Mummy? Uh, it's been a very long time since I've seen the. the What's with the scarabs? And they, yeah, they go up to your brain and then they eat your brain. Yeah, yeah, I think those. I think that's the mummy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With the um, what is it, Brian? The I don't remember the actor. I can remember scenes from movies like that. I cannot remember actors. So yeah. <laughs> huh. Okay. Yeah. One of my one of my responses is like, well. If you threw a room-sized object at the room, you can't miss the fly. That is true. Yeah. Well, and and one of the things about his question is he doesn't actually stipulate no harm to anything other than the fly. He just says, "How do you get rid of the fly?" So I mean, there's all kinds of destructive methods that you like, you know, have the room implode or something. No, you have to shoot something at it. Okay. So you have to, a projectile has okay, to yeah, yeah. hit the fly. So in your case, it's sound waves hitting the fly. Right. I, I like the idea. We did. W- one of the suggestions was a catapult with uh, paper balls. I think it just seems really difficult to actually hit it. I think. I think. Yeah. I think the proper internet term though is trebuchets. Or do you not know that meme? Uh yeah. Yeah, I think I do. Have you ever <laughs> built a trebuchet? Yes, actually, I have. <laughs> you know, uh, funny story. Uh, I built it at uh, at scout camp. We built a trebuchet. Yeah, yes, yeah, so, so so did I. Yeah, 
You know, it was funny because um, uh, we built, we had uh, all of our troop or patrols in the troop built, um, each one built a trebuchet and we launched water balloons at each other. And it just so happened that the next campsite over was a bunch of um, professors from Texas A&M that were engineering professors. And it, they like, they just watched us the whole time. They're like, what? Like they didn't know Boy Scouts <laughs> did stuff like this. Yeah, it was fun. We, yeah, we, we 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 had to make trebuchets out of sticks. Uh, we got sticks, rope, and one bucket, and you had to make a trebuchet. Yeah, we had a we had a bucket, sticks. We actually didn't build it for anything besides just building it, though. We were we just launched rocks out into the lake. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And you realize, like, the big thing with trebuchets is the sling mechanism. Oh gosh, yeah, that's hundred percent. All the engineering goes into the sling mechanism because, like, yeah, it's yeah. A, it's a lever with a big weight, and so the last thing is the sling mech that is super complicated to get right. Like, when does it release? How long should it be? You know, how much? What's the, the, max the, the angle? The angle that the little finger sticks off is like, that all of that yeah. matters. Yeah, and it, and, and you you it, you can't defeat it. By just like adding more weight, no, that doesn't do make it any better. Like that might work for a catapult or something, but a trebuchet is well, way catapult's more not intense. weight; it's tension. You're right. You're right. Yeah, yeah. But like a catapult, you can just add more tension, I guess, and you get more, different results. But adding more rocks on a trebuchet might just make the whole thing just blow up. Yeah, blow up. Yep. So that was the Macrofab <laughs> Trebuchet <laughs> Engineering Podcast. Yeah. We are your hosts, Parker Dillman and Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, you are a listener for downloading our show. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, or you're a trebuchet expert, and you want Stephen and I to talk more about that, uh, tweet us at Macrofab or email us at podcast at macrofab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. I'm sure we're going to be talking about trebuchets all weekend long. If you're not subscribed to that podcast yet, click that subscribe button. That way you get the latest episode right when it releases. And please review us wherever you listen as it helps this show stay visible and helps new listeners find us.